Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear! Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. And that song we heard um, was by George Musu and it's called um, Binik Mazu Nu and it's from um, My Island Home Project. Um, George Musu is an Argun Wakaid clansman from the Badu Islands. Um, so today you're tuning in live to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio with myself, Tanhang, and Iris in the studio. We also have a very special guest um, who will be joining us in a minute, um, Virginia Fraser. Um, but first I'd like to acknowledge um, country. So I'd just like to acknowledge that Queering the Air on 3CR um, is broadcasting from stolen, unceded lands of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to acknowledge that genocide happened on these lands, that colonial violence continues to happen on this land, and that a treaty has yet to be signed. We'd like to pay our respect to the owners of this land, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples, and the elders in those communities. We'd like to pay our respect to any elders and Indigenous people um, who are tuning into 3CR right now. Um, I'd also like to do an acknowledgement in um, one of my main languages, Vietnamese, um, for any Vietnamese people who are perhaps listening out there right now. So, chung chung nay, um, chen lang to kulin, tu chuk den nay va vin vin ku yom yang gurandri va bunurong. Vi the cha kin chom nyum ting boy va su tiep noi vang hoa tung man dat nay. So, this week has been NADOC week. It's been a big week. Um, and um, NADOC week should really be every week of the year. Um, but yeah, so I guess it's it's really, we have a really special show for you, Queering the Air listeners, today. Um, we're going to be covering, doing a special ded- show dedicated to Lisa Belair. Um, and for those who don't know Lisa Belair, uh, Lisa Belair was a Minjungbul Gornpil Nunukul Kanak woman, um, an ind- Indigenous activist, photographer, broadcaster, poet, feminist, academic and performer. She was widely admired within the Australian Indigenous community and was rarely seen without her camera, documenting two decades of Indigenous community life. 
By 2006, she had created a collection of over 30,000 images. The exhibition Close to You, the Lisa Belair Picture Show, marks the 10th anniversary of Lisa's passing and showcases a selection of photographs held by the Koori Heritage Trust. The exhibition was curated by close friends and artists Destiny Deacon and Virginia Fraser and cousin Kim Kruger. So in the studio today, um, I have one of the co-curators, Virginia Fraser. Welcome to Queering the Air on 3CR. Thank you. <laughs> um, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm an artist and a, um, a writer and some occasional curator and an editor as well. So art mm -hmm. and art-related activities. Mm, perfect. Um, so I guess I want to start with um, what brought you to curating the exhibition, Lisa Bella's exhibition? Lisa died in... 2006, so 10 years ago, mm. and her cousin Kim Kruger had the idea of having an exhibition because there are all these photographs just sort of not quite just lying in the Koori Heritage Trust. So some work had been done on that, in, that enormous tangle of photos and mm. necks that she left behind. And then Kim was working full time and sort of got cold feet, I think, or realised she couldn't do it. And... Um, Destiny and I got dragged into it and then Kim came back into it and mm. we proceeded that way. Yeah. And do you feel that each of you brought a very different perspective when working together to curate this exhibition? Yes. Good question. <laughs> yeah, I'd love yeah. to know more about that. Well, well um, I ended up doing most of the research because I had the time to do it, really. Um, mm -hmm. Kim didn't and it sort of gave Destiny made her feel funny. She and Lisa shared various houses for 15 or 20 years. So, mm. you know, it's still a bit of a, a, a strange place to be for Destiny. Mm. Um, so, yes, we did. Uh, I think Kim's was much more to do with promoting Lisa as a person and a kind of small... Uh, Forgive me, Kim, if I've got this wrong, but a more sort of sentimental feeling about mm. Lisa and Destiny thought it was a good idea and said she'd be in it as long as she didn't have to go to too many meetings. So she <laughs> excelled it. So she did, she did more meetings than she wanted to. And I really wanted to sort of make Lisa's photographic practice better known. It's very, it's a very mm. interesting photographic practice, and all of us just wanted that big archive not to go to waste, you know, to put get it out there and help to continue interest in it. Yes. And um, I'm like, I'm sh there were, well, rec in record wise, there were over 30,000 images. Did you have to go through all those images? I or? probably looked at nearly 20,000, I think. Mm. There are, mm. I mean, that most of them are snaps. Lisa really had a snapshot practice. So she went around with a camera yeah. taking film photographs mm -hmm. and getting them printed so mm. most of what's in there is just those little snaps you get back from the chemist or used to get back from the chemist or the yeah so there are a lot of duplicates in it she made she always promised people a copy of the photographs that they were in mm. um, and often made multiple copies always doubles I think and sometimes multiples beyond that so after a while as you're going through the boxes you start seeing the same photograph so I don't really know how many unique images there are, but there's certainly this huge quantity, <coughs> excuse me, mm. of um, snapshots, some things that have been enlarged and um, 
I forget the word for it now, you know. Um, 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 enlarge. Uh, and, and, and put in a plastic sleeve. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and um, <laughs> that have been used in exhibitions at various universities that she was involved with. Mm. And also a huge, a, a great big archive box absolutely stuffed full of negatives. So yeah. who knows, there are probably more in there. Yeah, that's... Like what I really love about Lisa's work, and it, you say it here in the um, the the catalogue. It's a really great catalogue for anyone um, who hasn't seen it yet. It's the catalogue for the exhibition. Um, I'm just gonna quote you. Yeah, um, sure. So, in your piece, you've written it's like the piece is called "In the Picture." And um, you say that she used her camera to travel into the middle of situations, to make a world for herself and to draw people in it, symbolically expressed in the way she positioned herself at the centre of most group shots she was in. I found that very interesting as a photographer because I... You know, in the history of photography, um, it's a very, like, anthropological gaze. There's a hierarchy between um, the photographer and the subject um, or usually referred to as the object. Um, But in Lisa's photograph, like, I can certainly see how she knew so many people, she was connected to so many people, um, and she really embedded herself in um, all the people that she met. So I think that's really amazing of, of her to do that, and, of course, she's she's part of those communities as well yeah the camera helped her to travel i mean things a couple of things you'd need to know about lisa for those who don't is that she was adopted so Mm -hmm. she was born in melbourne in the royal women's hospital and her mother became ill and went home and put lisa into the berry street foundling home or the baby's home I think it was and you could sort of it was like a boarding house for babies you Mm. could pay some rent and they'd look after the baby and then her mother died and I understand that her relatives in um, northern New South Wales um, kept up the payments for when they tried to get the baby back it had been repossessed as it were by the state or whatever and adopted so Lisa had been adopted and her name was changed so she didn't know that she was Aboriginal. I think she sort of suspected after a while, but she was told she was Polynesian and she was sexually exploited by somebody in her adoptive family. And so, you know, there were a lot of... Um, it was kind of a bad start. But mm. she... Um, I mean, part of the point... About Lisa is that she, you know, despite this bad start, she was a very positive person, and she always um, she 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 connected well with people, and she worked hard at it. She was worked hard to be likable, and she was likable. But she really she 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 worked her way into the Koori community in Melbourne from outside. So when she finally got connected, which didn't take very long actually, because mm. her family was looking for her she um, I mean she's talked about this about having grown up with sort of quite racist ideas about Aboriginal people and Mm. so she had to deal with all that while discovering that she was one and um, so a lot of I think a lot of the camera and the uh, microphone work was really building bridges for herself but she was it's a way of putting herself right into the middle of a community, and she did, you know. She, So it's a really interesting way of going about it. I mean, she had a lot of horrible things happen to her, but she made something 
really good out of the th- you know the things that had happened to her and her troubles really were as much as much her troubles really motivated her as much as her sort of you know the sunnier side of her nature to do what she did mm. to get in amongst the community and sort of sp- spread it around mm, yeah and um yeah well when i went to the exhibition there were like a, a range of photos and you know there were lots of photos with police in it as well um can you talk more about like selecting those <coughs> photos <laughs> yeah well i apparently lisa wanted to at one point wanted to be a join the police force mm-hmm. but she ended up her first degree out of several was to, as a social worker um Sorry, I'm going to have to cough. Yeah, sure. <coughs> and she always had to sort of... You can see in her photographs... I mean, a lot of photographs are of demonstrations and whatnot, so there are always police present at those. But, you know, you can frame the photographs so the police aren't in them, but she always... It was sort of like, where's Wally? There'd always be at least one. And she also took photographs of police, like she photobombed. There's a picture of her sitting next to a rather uncomfortable looking policewoman on a train and (laughs) sitting on the back of a a divvy van with two little nieces training them to Mm. take an equalizing attitude towards the police (laughs) so some of the some of the the police photographs um, some of those are some of my favorites actually they're Mm. sort of really dry and funny and Mm. yeah 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 I really like them I also really like the the out black ones yeah, um, towards the yeah, end, at yeah. the end of the gallery, they're they're really amazing as well. Um, I'd love for you to talk more about the gallery too, and what's in gallery too. Well, there are two galleries at the trust, two main galleries downstairs, and the first one you just walk into, and the second one's a room that you walk through. The first one into gallery two. So the main gallery is the sort of public Lisa, where it's a lot of photographs of mm. demonstrations, NADOC, Journey of Healing, a big set of Camp Sovereignty photographs from 2006, which was the year she died. Mm. And a lot of photographs of people. Uh, they're sort of party people having fun yeah. and portrait people. And there are more of those actually on the second level. But the gallery two downstairs is more like private Lisa. Or mm. um, So there's a room, a kind of fictionalised version of her room, the house she shared with Destiny. Um, which is just a stud wall with a, that's lined with something you can see through, and then there's stuff from her room. So it's not her whole room, and it's but it's everything in there except the couch came out of her room. So it just gives oh, you wow. a feeling of that intimacy. Le- of yeah, like exactly. Her, yeah, her so and, the, they... and that there was a, a sort of more private side to Lisa because she moved in a lot of different groups mm. and I can see that, you know, she'd show this um, friendly, she was a, really a point of public friendliness in a lot of situations and so there was this other side to her altogether, this private domestic side that was mm. more complicated really. And there are also a couple of slideshows in there, one of her posing with people, so that was a big part of her photographic practice actually was to just grab anybody and have a photograph <laughs> taken so there's pictures of her with three Victorian premiers the Angela Davis with yeah, just anybody famous people unfamous people there was a photo of her with Pauline Hanson that we couldn't find oh. but 
So yeah. anyway, it was completely indiscriminate. <laughs> if you were a bit famous, she'd uh, pose she, with you. Yeah, yeah. Wow, would it be almost like she would get someone else to take the photo or would it almost be like a selfie? There are a few <laughs> selfies, you know, they've oh, got that sort so of yeah, slightly the, distorted look, but most of them she's just given the camera to somebody else mm-hmm. or they've taken it and sent her the photo or grabbed the camera from her or, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but she definitely, I mean, I took a lot of them. So, oh, yeah. You know, so anybody who was handy, she'd just give the camera to. Mm. And the camera you have um, featured in Gallery 2, did she just have one camera or did she have multiple cameras? And... She had multiple cameras, sort of successive cameras, mm. really. So they'd get broken or lost or yeah. she'd get a better one. So they gradually got better. And you can see with the older photos, they weren't shot in such good cameras. And then the last camera, the sort of 2006 work, is a pretty good camera but they're all analog cameras film cameras yeah great um lisa like as i mentioned earlier in in introducing her on the show um she was also a poet and she was also doing a phd um just before she passed away and she was also a programmer here at 3CR on Not Another Curry Show, um, which is incredible. Did you ever get to see those other aspects of her life? Yes, I, I did, because I I met her through Destiny, mm-hmm. um, with whom I have a personal and working relationship. And so I met Lisa because she'd shared a house with Destiny. So I saw Destiny a lot. And when Lisa was in Melbourne... Um, there were a couple of times she went away for a couple of years, but I'd, so I'd see her almost every day. So I mm. saw a lot of a lot of Lisa. Yeah. Um, so she she when, once she went to university, she never really got out. She did a social work degree, then she worked at the Curie Liaison Office at Melbourne University. Then she did a creative writing. Next, she did a women's studies course. Uh, Masters at Melbourne University, then a creative writing masters at mm. Queensland University, mm. and then she was doing this PhD at La Trobe. Yeah, I was trying to. I heard that she'd written a PhD on um, uh, the use of radio and photography in Indigenous communities or yeah, something like yeah. that. And I was like, I want to read that, but she never finished it. Is that N- no? Oh, she didn't she... finish it, but she there are drafts of sections of it at the trust. Oh, in really? one wow. of the boxes. And she's being given a posthumous PhD by La Trobe University where she was mm. studying. Mm. And maybe something else will come out of that. And also in the catalogue, some of the sections, there's a sort of a essay-ish yeah. thing, which is a compilation of things Lisa wrote about photography from different sources. And a couple of those sections are from her PhD or talks that she gave to PhD classes. Oh, amazing. I'll definitely have to... Um, well, I've got the catalogue right here, so I highly recommend everyone check out this exhibition. It's until the 17th of July, is That's that right? That's right, so yep. it finishes soon. Yes, very soon. Um, what's the date today? It is like the 10th, the 10th of July, so in seven days. Um, so the exhibition is Lisa Bella, close to you. It's the Lisa Bella Picture Show. It's at the Koori Heritage Trust, which is now um, at Fed Square. So... Um, Please go there and check out the exhibition. It's it's very, very amazing. Um, and today we've been lucky enough to have one of the co-curators uh, in the studio here, Virginia Fraser. Thank you so much for coming on the show. That's okay. Thanks yeah. very much for... 
Thanks. Thanks yeah. for having me. Um, so now we're going to hear uh, a really rare interview that Lisa did with. Um, uh, let me think. Who is the person? So it's an interview that Lisa did with um, Raspani on Women on the Line, and this is from 1992. And it's just um, a short snippet of it. But if you do want to hear the the full version, then um, I'll put the link up on Querying the Airs um, Facebook. Oh, sorry, Querying the Airs um, 3CR page. So please check that out. And yes. You were adopted and fostered and you were brought up by white people and you know what, you might have gone to private school, you might have even had a pony. These are some of the stereotypes. And you might even learn to ski, that's another stereotype. Destiny says blacks don't ski. Okay, I put my hand up, but I was adopted, you know, and I'm starting to feel ashamed about that. But there's still that pain that, that you, you go through. I mean, nothing that, all these material things cannot make up for the, the loss of not being brought up with your family. And when I met up with my, you know, some more of my relations, like I'm, you know, I've, got, I've got hundreds of relations, but I've got family right around Australia too. That's white family and that's my indigenous family because there's some, you know, white people that look out for me, for me too. Uh, I just cried. I just couldn't deal with it. I just looked, looked around, you know, all this, all this family, and I just for that split second, I know I shouldn't have, but I couldn't help it. I just kept thinking, I missed out on this. Lisa Belair is one of the stolen generations of Aboriginal children, and today on Women on the Line, she tells her story. Hello, I'm Ruth Barney. Lisa was one of the contributors to Breaking Through, Women, Work and Careers, edited by Jocelyn Scott. In Breaking Through, Lisa writes, Since the invasion, one in six Aboriginal children has been removed from their natural family. I was one of those victims. Because of the support and love of some close friends who are more like family, I can now call myself a survivor. Adopted as a baby by a white family in 1961, Lisa grew up not knowing that she was Aboriginal. Later, on the pretext of getting a better education, she was sent to boarding school. The real reason, says Lisa, is that she was being sexually abused by her adoptive father. Incredibly, Lisa has overcome these odds to speak out about and work for the rights of Indigenous people in Australia. As a teenager, Lisa says she was inspired by then-Senator Susan Ryan and her outspokenness on women, Aboriginals and education. She says, I told myself if I stuck at school, attended university, I would be able to work for Susan Ryan in Canberra. Today, Lisa works as the Aboriginal Liaison Officer at Melbourne University and broadcasts on 3CR and 3LO in Melbourne. She's been active in Aboriginal theatre and education and did a stint as a counsellor for Collingwood Council. This is Lisa's story. My mum came down from the north coast of New South Wales, or probably... 1960, around about then, came down to Melbourne, um, to Carlton. Actually, she had a job at the uh, Postmaster General, uh, PMG, as it used to be called, the old uh, yeah, post office, uh, which was also very unusual for a Koori woman, well, a Koori person, to actually have a, a government job back in those days. And she met my, my dad. I mean, the story's a bit hazy there, and... At the time, uh, because she worked, I was in Berry Street Babies Home, East, East Melbourne, and uh, I guess some of the, the listeners would be aware then, but, you know, back in the 1960s, could even be before then, uh, you actually 
paid to have your child minded in Berry Street as opposed to its role now. But in addition to the payment, you signed a document which said that if payment fell in arrears by four weeks, then automatically you became a ward of the state. Now, what happened, my mum um, got really sick. She went home to Lismore in New South Wales. And again, you know, we've got to look at the big picture. And during the 1960s, like I was born in 1961, but preceding that, where um, the, the federal government and the state government had, a, had a, an official policy of, of assimilation, okay? Assimilation which spelt out uh, in, in quite detail uh, that Aboriginal people were to become Australian citizens. Here we are talking about assimilation, and we didn't even receive citizenship till 1967. I guess there's a bit of irony in there. So that uh, you had government instrumentalities, for example, for, for the police that would go into to Aboriginal people's homes and, and take children. You had the social work workers who played an active role. And you also had things uh, like with, with my circumstances, how my mum got, got sick, she went home, and when she was in hospital, of course, she, she didn't receive medical care with everybody else because she was a Koori, so she was treated uh, in the basement of the hospital and uh, you know we, I don't know the type of care that she 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 received uh, she wrote a will saying I was to go to my grandmother and she died but before she died a letter got sent to her saying well and this this will isn't recognized because it wasn't signed by a justice of the peace uh, so you know and, and in order for me to go home uh, they'd need we need two airfares and adequate winter clothing so that if, you know, my grandmother who was raising eight other children had money for two airfares, then there was adequate uh, winter clothing. And, you know, good question, Ruth, what does adequate winter clothing mean? So it was sort of like, uh, I look at the big picture, it's important to do that in order to, 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 to try and make sense of what's gone on in this country. And years ago, like, I couldn't even... I couldn't even talk about what we're talking about. Like, I, 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 I do cry. Like sometimes I, I, I'll, I'll be in my room or I'll be walking around the streets because I still don't drive it and have my have my Ray Bans on. And you just think about things that you don't necessarily think about you. The only time that I really consciously sort of think about, you know, because you can't be thinking, well, gosh, what, what, what if we didn't have assimilation? You know, what if, what if white people didn't invade our country? You know, what if this was a, a, a sexist, free, racist, free society? You know, what if, I mean, all I know is what, what I've gone through. All I know is how I've reacted to that, how angry that, that I have been in, in, in my life when I was younger. I didn't do things like slash myself I didn't do things like some queries would do and that's you know put acid on their skin to make themselves white or they'd get steelo wool and scrub their skin you know this is all this is all stuff that's happened to queries to Aboriginal people to Torres Islanders that have been you know taken away fostered adopted put in orphanages it was all supposed to make us good citizens of of this country, you know, um, you know, one 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 nation, and not everyone can 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 speak out on 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 these issues, and it's very painful for me. But it's something that I have an obligation to Australian society, you know, to at least say to people out there, look, please 
listen, please try and understand. It's no good saying I wasn't here in 1788, but look around what's gone on in, in more recent history. Look what's gone, gone on, you know, in the 1930s, the 1950s, the 1960s, and we're here in the 1990s. I think everyone wants to be proud of this country, but in order to be, to be proud of, of whatever it means to be Australian, we, we've got to acknowledge what's gone on to the Indigenous community in this country. Well, like you say, you, like so many other Aboriginal children, were taken away from your family and actually adopted out to a white family. Yeah, and the thing with me, I, I was um, told that I was Polynesian. And so when I used to experience a lot of the racism at school, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it, it'd be good to be like an outsider and say, well, that's a fascinating experience that, you know, Case LB went through. Um, you know, she was Koori, but she was brought up that she was Polynesian and, and, and what effect did that have on her psyche and her personal development? You know, it, oh, I can't stand that sort of approach. And I had to go through, like, I mean, when people would call me things like Abbo, Boong, Coon, when I'd get bashed up in the schoolyard for being black, like, I used to think, well, I'm Polynesian. Or I was, I was told that I was Scottish. Well, you know, my adoptive parents, my adoptive father was Scottish and my adoptive mother was actually born in Waterford in Ireland. And then uh, there was me and I had an adoptive brother too, which doesn't get mentioned in the story, so this is, you know, for you. And he was... He was white, white Australian and, and four years older than me and I'd like to be in contact with him but I've got to do some, do some research there. So it wasn't until later on in life that I officially found out that I wasn't Polynesian. So I, I used to get given books and told that, you know, my grandmother was a Polynesian princess and get books on Hawaii. And at one stage, um, my adoptive parents were going to move to New Zealand because they said, well, you know, you're, you're Polynesian and so that means, you know, Maori. You Did know. they actually know that you were a Koori? Well, again, you know, I mean, so people say that I'm too kind and I'm too generous. That's something that I, I, I always want to maintain regardless of wherever I end up. And I'm sure I've got enough aunties and uncles and cousins and friends and people like you that'll keep me on the track. You know, and just sort of say, look, Blair, remember who you are. That, when I got my file from Community Services, that was in 1986, that's Community Services of Victoria. Um, when Destiny, uh, uh, Destiny Deacon, that is, you know, you know, we had discussions about, look, you've got to know who you are. And I mean, I knew that, but I was that scared because one of the things is I had, I had prejudices. I was racist, and I'll admit that, you know. So when I mix with, say, white people and they... They, they feel uncomfortable about, you know, racism and, you know, how can I understand Aboriginal people? Well, you know, how, how can they ever understand an Indigenous person having racism towards other Indigenous people? Now, I know about internalised uh, oppression and internalised racism now. I mean, I, and, and going to America really helped me understand what that, that meant. But prior to that knowledge, I had, I had to work through so much... Um, anger, I had to work through my fears, because all I knew about Koori people in this country was what I read in the newspapers, what I saw on television, what I heard on the radio, if there was anything on, 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 on the radio. And predominantly, it, you know, it tended to be either a success story and usually a sporting success story. Uh, of course, I'm not saying anything 
against our finer athletes uh, who I admire, many of them. Or it would be the, the Aboriginal problem. And there, you know, and there was me. I didn't mix with any any people that that everyone that I mixed with was was white, you know. I couldn't go home and talk about racism. I couldn't go home like I can't explain this. All I know is that when I used to get bashed up because of people thinking that I was different, you know, and an Aboriginal person. I couldn't go home to my adopted parent. I don't know why I couldn't go home and say, hey, I got dashed up because someone called me black. I protected myself and so I didn't see myself as, 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 as black. jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we've got the hand. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. Sitting here in a lonely old guest house I'm sure that my life is all through Scratching free and watching the grey mouse And that song um, is I've Lied by Archie Roach. Um, so just before that, uh, we heard a clipped interview, um, a women online interview that Res Barney did with um, Lisa Belair. Um, yeah, and so, yes, we're here in the studio querying the air. I'm Tan Hang and I'm with my host Iris. And in the studio we have um, co-curator of the Lisa Belair um, exhibition, um, Virginia Fraser. So we were just talking very briefly just before we got back on air about um, how you said that Lisa sounded like very different on sounded like Lisa, but it didn't sound like Lisa oh, on that recording. That's not quite right. I mean, mm. I, I, it did sound like Lisa. It's mm. it's interesting that you know it, it's more present hearing somebody's voice than looking at a photograph of them. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's what I was saying. And yet there's a a sort of a careful that deliberate way of bringing out the story is is a thing that she did more in public than in private, I suppose. I mean, it's a public mm. voice. Mm. I keep banging on about this. Yeah. It's sort of interesting, the differences, <laughs> yeah, sometimes slight differences, sometimes big differences between the way we are in public and the way we are in private and with different people and For so sure. on. And how do you think, like, her photographic practice, like, um, what parts of that were very public and what parts of that were private? The, I guess it was all both in a way. I mean, it's an interesting thing about her 
photographs, when you see them all collected together, that they've there's a very warm, intimate feel about them mm. because of the way she approached people. So sometimes um, that that she she would be direct with people. She didn't take a lot of photographs from a distance of people. She was always in amongst it and mm. you can see that she's got people to look at her. In, in the exhibition there are lots and lots of people just looking directly at you with quite happy expressions on their yeah. faces, aren't they? Yes. So, and so it's quite an interesting experience and that's a sort of an experience she generated for herself with a camera and then took the photos and then passed it on. Mm. But you were asking before about radio. Yeah, so Lisa had a show here on um, 3CR, Not Another Koori Show. Yeah, Yeah. Not Another Koori Show Lisa did with Destiny Deacon and Mm -hmm. Destiny's sister Janina Harding. They did it for quite a long time. And before that they did a show, I think a late night show, called The Raspberry Aid Brigade. Mm which I used to listen to when I was in my dark room. So I heard <laughs> I heard all their voices before I ever met them. Um, did you have um, a question, yeah. Iris? <laughs> oh, could you go into what Lisa was like on her show, on, on the shows that she was on, on 3CR? Well, she s- sounded rather like that, but she was sometimes more bubbly and mm. she had mm. a very approving interviewing style. So everybody that she interviewed was marvellous, you know. Yeah. So it was more the Annabelle Crabb, something here about the election coverage, but more Annabelle Crabb than Barry Cassidy, you know. It was sort of like, oh, it's great, you're great. Yeah. And, um, was that on both shows? Yes, she was, that was really mm-hmm. a method. She was not generally a confrontational person. Sometimes she'd go off pop at people yeah. and, and give them what for, but on the whole she was sort of tactful flatter full of flattery and mm. and you know m- more the honeyed approach than the other and it was yeah. sort of interesting because sometimes she'd interview people who you know she wasn't at all aligned with like Andrew Bolt I remember was one oh, she really? interviewed and she just yeah. used the same warm pleasant you're interesting mm. sort on 3CR of Andrew Bolt <laughs> I think it was on 3CR no. yeah, yeah. and so <laughs> that produced an unexpected result I mean you know yeah. it didn't she didn't end up making him, you know, she just invited him to speak and he did. Oh, wow. I wonder how he would have um, reacted to that kind of approach. I don't know. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear he, that. He's a we'll bit have of to a dig through the archive. Hawk, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and do you think that her, like, her photographic practice was, her approach to photography was quite different to doing radio? No, I think it was all of a piece in a way. Mm. I mean, there, it, part of it is um, this thing about putting herself into the middle of things and making personal connections and keeping those alive by connecting with people she'd photographed or interviewed. But the other thing is really working to create a record, you know, to her, her PhD was an aspect of it was dealing with photographs and the lack of names on historical photographs of Aboriginal Mm. people. So there are some quite famous photographs, Victorian photographs, for instance, that a lot of, you know, you see them published Mm. many times, but you don't actually know who those people were. Maybe some people have got an idea that 
who they were, but it, you know they're not named in the way that a photograph of any of us might be named. For sure, you know, there's a picture of Iris, you know, blah blah blah, and so, like a lack of ownership as well yeah, of those historical yeah. photographs. And and so a lot of her photographic work and the many interviews that she did were really a way of um, passing on information and the. Her photographic archive and the exhibition, which is just one exhibition you could pull out of it, is really, um, I forget what I was going to say. I got so interested in the idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It'll come back to uh, me. uh, Yeah. Feel free to just shout it out when it comes back to you. Um, Is there... uh, Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Please go. (laughs) It's... um, it's a slice of Melbourne life. It's a slice of Koori life in Melbourne. And, and also she lived in Brisbane for a while and took photographs of people in Sydney. But most of it's to do with Melbourne. But it's also just a slice of Melbourne life. I mean, you know, there are Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in the photographs. And it's a sort of 20-year band, you know, of her mm. wide-ranging interests. And it's just very... Interesting. I mean, I'm sure other people have taken photographs, but maybe not so many. Mm. And it's not a kind of fine art kind of practice, although there are some fantastic photographs, really beautiful or, or arresting photographs. But the big thing about it for me is that she had this rather sort of humble practice. I mean, an ordinary sort of practice, just with a camera and taking snaps. But when you put it all together, there are big stories yes. in it. And... Um, a, a, a sort of I- intimacy that's not often associated with. Um, f- well, there are a lot of photographs of demonstrations, for instance, and there's very often, whether they're indigenous or non indigenous demonstrations, there's this kind of heroic sort of feel to them, and they're often taken from a distance above or, you know, sure, from outside. Yeah. And Lisa's were always inside, mm. or if they're above, people are looking up and waving at her, you know. Mm. Mm. And it, it's a. Relationship, yeah, and it so it shows uh, community from the inside. So yeah, that, that's what's really interesting and important to it about me. And also, the just the cumulative nature of it. I mean, she didn't have a lot of money a lot of the time because she was studying, and she spent an awful lot of what she had getting these photos printed and buying more film, and you know. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. The um, is. Will do you know if it will be possible to have a look at the other photos at the that the Koori Heritage Trust have, or is that more like um, for the Koori Heritage Trust and then perhaps in the future? No, they've. Maybe. I mean, researchers, you can apply to do some research, and mm. and um, I mean that would be the way to do yeah. it. And there are other people who are interested in using them. I mean, the, I think the the exhibition is part of the aim of the exhibition was to kind of revive or refresh interest in Lisa's photographs. You don't... I mean, the longer they sit in there not properly named and so yeah. on, the, the more people forget who's in them. So that mm. was one of the jobs of the exhibition was to kind of try and add more names to photographs before they drift off. Yeah. Um, so do you have any final words on, like... Um, your thoughts on the exhibition or Lisa or like perhaps like um, a photograph in the exhibition that really stood out for you? Oh, there are quite a few really. Um, I mean, one of the things I'd say is about 500 individual shots in there 
including mm. the slideshows. So if you've ever been to a NAIDOC demonstration or even hung around in the Federation Square, there quite likely is a photograph of you in there somewhere. Go and have a look. <laughs> um, so you asked me a question. I think it's... Um, yeah, I guess there's... Is there... Was there a photograph of you in in the exhibition that you saw? I couldn't. I hope not. I I actually, there were, Lisa took a lot of bad photos as well as good photos, yeah. and and, <laughs> and because I was sort of around a lot, I got a lot of those kind of. Mm. I don't know. In the end, I just said no. Please don't show me any more nasty photos. I don't like having my photograph taken anyway. Yeah, yeah. So there are a couple of photos in the catalogue because mm. everybody who wrote had to have one on yeah, yeah. So maybe I'm in there somewhere. So but go to page, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. To see a photograph that's 25 years old. But um, no, so there's. I hope there are no photographs of me. And there are more <laughs> interesting things going on. But it, it, it's a, um, you know, that's what it is. It's a slice of, a slice of Melbourne life, Koori life, yeah. public mostly, not always, mm. Um, mm. from ending in 2006, so from about uh, mid-80s, late-80s to mm. the year Lisa died in. And it it just gives you a different view of Melbourne, really. Yeah, it really does. Mm. Um, so I highly recommend everyone to check out that exhibition. Again, it's called Close to the Lisa Belair Picture Show. It's on at the Koori Heritage Trust at Federation Square. And um, you can catch it up until the 17th of July. Today's the 10th of July, everyone, so seven days. Um, please head down there. Um, and you've been listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio with myself, Tanhang and Iris. And um, we've been joined in the studio by Virginia Fraser, one of the co-curators of the exhibition. Um, but just before we head out, we have just a couple of things to plug. Iris? So, coming up next next weekend, on the 16th of July at 1pm, we have the Sovereignty, Sovereignty Sanctuary event held by RISE, the Refugee Survivors and Ex-Detainees Group. And I'm going to read out their statement from the Facebook event. Refugees coming to Australia are being, being indefinitely detained, both onshore and offshore, involuntarily deported back to their countries to danger, and physically and sexually abused in detention centres. As refugees, asylum seekers and ex-detainees in Australia, we acknowledge that the land we seek protection on is the land of Indigenous peoples. In order to recognise the plight of refugee re- arrivals in Australia, as well as the ongoing struggle for Indigenous self-determination, First Nations Liberation, RISE and WAR, which is the acronym for the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance Group, um, will hold a solidarity event in Melbourne on the 16th of July at 1pm. On this day, RISE, on behalf of the refugee community, will acknowledge Aboriginal sovereignty over this nation and stand in solidarity with the dispossessed First Nations of this country. We commit to fighting for justice on the terms set by Aboriginal people and nothing else. On behalf of Sovereign House, Elder Robbie Thorpe will present passports to RISE members. Issuing Indigenous passports to refugees sends a strong message. Under Indigenous law, Refugees are welcome to this land. 
RISE will also outline a pledge which consists of how Australia, government and non-profit sector, should treat refugees arriving to Australia, Australia on boats. Speakers include Abdul Beg, Eugenia Flynn, Gary Foley, Ricky Onis, um, Noel Ali, Robert Robbie Thorpe, Ronnie Kareni, Vivian Marlowe, and an ex detainee fledged from Fadak Alfeda, and performances by Robert Champion, Tanya Kanas, and hosted by Ame Raman. So that was the first, my first, the first plug. It's, it's a very important event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and it's on the 16th of July, um, so this upcoming Saturday at the State Library of Victoria at 1pm. And the second event I have as a flag is one of Grenier's own fundraisers. So the 30th of July at Hazard Hyenas, Grenier is going to be fundraising to cover the costs of um, keeping 3CR on air. Mm-hmm. And that will be happening at 7.30 at Hazard Hyenas, the 30th of July. And it's a ticketed event, so purchase your ticket. Um, you can purchase it online, um, online through the Facebook page or just go to Queering the Air's Facebook page to check out the event page. And there'll be lots of live music and poetry there. It should be a fun night. Yep, and there'll be um, a couple of performances by some of the Queering the Air um, members, including myself, so and Amy Witchway, and as well as um, Jules as well. So please do come down um, to Hairs and Hyenas on the 30th of July. Um, it'll be really great to see everyone there. Um, so just going to go out with a song by Lady Lash, and this is called Family All The Way. Um, you've been listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. Time is like only yesterday, but years have gone by. Love that we can smile, connect on the same level. Say what's up and meet the face of my baby nephew. All we got is hope, waiting for a change. Look into the mirror, years to another day. And I can see the part where it's happy, sad times. Trying not to catch you when it's funeral times. I know we will always have the mad bond. No one will break it, then. 